welcome back to Discursion. This is episode 15. And this time we're going to continue our theme of the moving camera, but also explore other aspects of the F.W. Murnau film, The Last Laugh. Um, my German is not that great, but it's something like Der Letzte Mann. Der Letzte Mann, yeah. yes. Which I think is a better a better title than uh, the English title. I suppose, I don't know who thought that The Last Man, that's what it means. Um, I don't know who thought that The Last Man was a you know, inadequate title, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. it, it makes the connection, uh, like it's referred to in... In in the film, right, the the biblical idea of the last shall be first and the first shall be last, which is explicitly referred to in that. Um, so that's the reason for the title, whereas the last laugh puts the emphasis slightly differently. It's like the main character is getting the last laugh, which I think slightly misses or misrepresents the film, I think. Yeah, the, the reason for that is because when it was released in the States, there was already a film coming out called The Last Man. There we go. It was as simple as that. And I think the director's the director of that film, his surname was even real, which is a great bit of nominative determinism if you're in the film industry. <laughs> but so they changed it. They changed it from the uh from the original German to the last laugh, which sounds sort of um more like a revenge film almost. Mm. Um sort of, you know, the main character gets the last laugh is one way of interpreting it. But the last man obviously has its reference within the film. Um, for me, it also reads maybe in a kind of contemporary framework as the last man standing for some reason, which is a slightly different resonance. But I quite like the idea almost that he sort of survived, the character yes. survived the you know trials of, I don't know, being a labourer. Um, mm. It came out the other side <laughs> um, through a fluke. But um, maybe, yeah, maybe we should we should do a sort of synopsis. It's it's nineteen twenty four. The film is made. And so it's got that sort of Weimar Germany context to it. It's made by UFA. So it's a big studio production. Presumably he was sort of, you know, they'd kind of... I mean, he'd done Nosferatu a couple of years before, a whole sort of other films. I mean, he was a big name at this point and he just joined a big studio. So, I mean, you might know sort of details of budgets, but I assume they they were they were at least not stinting on money, if not necessarily, th- you know, throwing money at him because... You know, it was like he was their new signing. Gosh, I wish I did know details of budgets, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I think the producer, Eric Pommer, gave them a lot of freedom. Um, so we're imagining a sort of relatively young Murnau. I mean, he did some military service, didn't he, as a young... And then he's yes. coming out he the other side. must have been in his 30s, yeah. I think. Working, I mean, we'd say relatively young Yannings as well, given, you know, he's 40 and his mm. character is meant to be much, much older than that. It's in that kind of interwar context, isn't it? Maybe military uniforms have a particular resonance with 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 the German populace. Uh, yes. That seems important, uh, given the film is about a hotel porter who's dressed very fancily, later gets sort of stripped of his uh, uniform and role because he's considered too old, mm. um, and simultaneously loses respect in his more sort of, I suppose, working class community that's at a at a distance from the hotel or the, the kind of inner city area that's that yeah. he's working in, which isn't isn't specifically a German city. It's just a sort of cosmopolitan, mm. generic sort of post-war city. It does feel very sort of European. Um, yeah. The, the hotel is called Atlantic. Yes. 
yes, and 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 crucially, um, it's not just that he loses face with his his neighbours um, because he's he's been demoted. Uh, it's that they think he they come to believe that he's been faking it the whole time. So they they think he never had the job. I think. Um, yeah, it's sort of. Uh, it's it's a really horrible twist because of course we've 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 seen his story yeah uh from a perspective that they don't share yes um uh i don't know if that's something something to do with the fact that they would just never venture into the city as well uh, right well that's kind of implied because very much you know when when the one the old woman who's his friend comes to give him some food or something which is which is when she finds out that he he isn't the doorman um it's quite an expedition for her we get that impression yeah which i think as you say would suggest these worlds don't don't mix much i really liked one like small sort of detail that 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 struck me that is extremely small but just in terms of how it tells the story because at the the very beginning you see him being a enjoying his job um and uh yeah he very you know the kind of hierarchy comes out very nicely how he can just um so it's raining at the beginning so he's in this great sort of black kind of sort of is it a cape no a kind of what you what do you like call a macintosh it kind of thing. yeah but it's the one that goes o- o- over your head so it's, it's like if of... anyone's seen pretty much any titanic film it's like <laughs> the sinking of the titanic um this scene with t- torrential rain and overcoats mm. and wet beards and it might even be a reference to the german silent film about the sinking of the titanic i wonder made in 1912 um but, but yes anyway. there's a great moment so when it stops raining quite so hard and uh, and he throws off his his raincoat and and, uh, and just sticks his arm out and and a little you know a young uh kind of attendant in a similar but much less grand uniform you know he's a boy of about 14 or something comes and takes it away from him so all these sort of hierarchies within hierarchies are quite uh quite clearly clearly conveyed which is i think you know important um but anyway no the detail that i that i liked is so he he gets a big heavy suitcase off the top of uh, of a taxi which i think he does successfully and he's obviously been sort of working for a long time um and so he's tired so he goes in and he sits down and he gets sort of a cup of tea or 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 something um at which point he gets spotted by the uh unsympathetic and extremely unsympathetic hotel manager who kind kind of makes a note of this but what i liked about it is it it seemed to me to set things up for some sort of injustice as in the manager thinks he's lazy but it's just he's been spotted at the moment when he's having a break after probably working for you know four hours or whatever it is but then actually when he gets sacked from his job as a doorman and um you know you know demoted to uh a washroom attendant it's not that it's just it, they say you're 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 just too old and you're not strong enough which is not unreasonable <laughs> i think i think about this in the context of the clichés about silent film and you know, the clichés about stars of acting and sort of exaggeration and you know sort of received ideas about them not being being particularly subtle which of course we know are nonsense but they still somewhat somewhat persist and i, I mean even a tiny detail doesn't really matter but um because uh, the film well, has barely any intertitles so there, there's a crucial one later on which i think towards the end of the film which we will probably talk about but um you you get 
uh, to read along along with um, Yannings' character, you get to read his yeah the letter demoting him, um, and it's translated in the subtitles is like he's 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 being demoted because of his old age, but what it actually says is because of his um like his weakness due to old age, hmm. um, and I think you've seen that clearly for the job you know does involve lugging around these enormous suitcases it must be terrible it, so it, it's it's clearly handled in it in a cruel way because his long 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 service is sort of not it doesn't make the process any more gentle but i think it's to me it seems quite important that it's not necessarily unjust it actually you know you know you know that same demotion handled differently would still have been very hard for him to accept but that actually could have been uh, if it had been presented differently, I can almost imagine him in, in, kind of seeing it as not quite a promotion, you know, but as a, it could have been presented as a recognition of his service or something. Um, it, it's not just, I, I think before seeing this film I, and knowing a little bit about just the rough, ex- expect, you know, the, the rough outlines of the plot, I was assuming it was you know, the imposition of a, of a cruel and arbitrary universe, but I like the fact that it's, it's something more subtle than that. Hmm. I suppose there is a, there's a kind of logic to it. Um, is, is the film's theme a bit broader than something about uh, old age and redundancy? Hmm. Um, is that befitting a, a kind of post-war Germany for for whatever reason? I, I it's a lot of that dignity, isn't it? That's a crucial. Although somebody I read somewhere, I now forget where, but somebody complained about the lack of realism because they said everyone knows that washroom attendants get paid more more than doormen, um, and so this wouldn't be a demotion. Uh, but actually, that strikes me as potentially that's interesting because even if that were the case, I'm not sure the character would mind, right? He it, mm. Again, this idea of that dignity, it's it's standing in, in his uniform. It's everybody... Clearly, all the guests know him. That there's That's sort of implied. You know, he enjoys, he enjoys saluting them. There is something quite obviously militaristic about it, although I don't think that's strongly played up. But still, yes, I, I, I can imagine some, someone... I mean, it doesn't happen in the film, but I can imagine someone saying to him, but, you know, what are you complaining about? Your you're old it's a job for a younger man and you're getting paid more and him saying i don't care about the money you know it's a vocation Uh, yes exactly 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 (laughs) it's been his life it it is yes yeah um and again that's it's so striking which is why it's so cruel later so striking when you first go we first see him go back to you know the tenements in which he lives which i think are kind of strike me as sort of he lives in more poverty than one might expect I think that sort of you know, that contrast is quite emphasised. But how much um, it's represented as how much his neighbours enjoy almost saluting him. Well, I mean, he does salute them as as, as he comes through, and it's all um, sort of presented as a kind of a sort of sort of positive view of kind of hierarchy. Like they just in, in, in they enjoy the fact, and he enjoys the fact that someone from that part of the world has such a such a dignified kind of job and obviously he, he is pompous but they're not laughing at him at that point i don't think it's no very... no i think they're very much with him and i'm not quite sure in 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 what way they're saluting him mm. is it because they mis misinterpret the uniform 
or I mean, given that being a hotel porter isn't sort of the grandest thing in the world, no, really. Um, or is it because they they understand they understand what his role is, but nevertheless they consider that yeah. to be you know it's not a bad it's not a bad job. It's not a man. It's not a heavily manual job most of the time. Again, uh, I think lot, like maybe but it like, is sometimes. Like you said about uniforms, and they like they like the dignity, and they like that he gets to wear that kind of uniform and perhaps it's not so much the specifics of of the job it's just that he gets to be in a job he gets to work it in, in in a uniformed job and be treated in a certain kind of way and most of them presumably or the vast majority of them don't i mean you know we don't see what they do but there must be lots of factory work and well yeah yeah i, I think so like that you can see in the set design a sort of sort of industrial background between the tenement blocks mm. got you they're not they're not sort of absolutely destitute but it's not but there's a sense of community and it's sort of kids playing around and well but and, it, but and again the the i mean we only we only really see inside his apartment with his with his daughter but again it's it's nicely um uh it's nicely furnished it's you know so yeah there's that sense of kind of working class pride in one's home yeah, um, you know these aren't slums. Although there are children, there are children sort of playing in dirty puddles. So yeah, there's there's quite a lot of detail in this film, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there is. I suppose from a yeah, from a you know a sort of uh, social perspective, uh, certainly. And they can afford alcohol, as we know, of course, because mm. there is a b- brilliant sequence where he uh drinks himself stupid mm. after getting demoted and has mm. visions of being this grand yeah. heavy heavy lifting uh, <laughs> yeah. doorman which is which is wonderful um i was just thinking about what you you said about hierarchies within hierarchies uh, maybe it's it's just a, a matter of perspective that um you know, to to be in that hotel, maybe uh, he's very conscious of where he sort of stands. You know, in, in mm. terms of the rankings. But outside of that context, even to be on the fringes of sort of a customer facing mm. uh, type work is considered to be very wonderful indeed. Mm. Um, there's also there is definitely a sense of two worlds. So that there's no sense that his role might lead to him escaping that world. Is it? It's just he gets to sort of exist on the fringes of it. I don't know. It's um, it's it's amazing how actually um, charged that uniform becomes, given that we don't. I suppose in 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 Madame Dura a few weeks ago uh, we we talked about the earrings, didn't we? Mm. Um, and this uniform does does sort of circulate in a way, um, mm. and 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 seems to have different different meanings for different people, and. Mm. Um, you could say that uh, uh, for, for him, it's sort of a, 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 an object of a sort of pride, and for the hotel, it's a, you know it's just a, an object on loan that they need to recall when he's demoted as part of their property. Mm. Um, and for others, it's sort of a more of a symbolic thing, which I think is pseudo militaristic. Mm. And there's when he gets demoted, actually, I I seem to recall one of the attendants. Um, Sort of stripping him of the uniform and pulling the pulling one of the buttons off, almost if, as if it was a medal, you know. Yes, uh, yes, which I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. But he risks. It's funny that he he risks um, getting fired from his new job potentially just to go in and steal the uniform. Yes, well, I mean specifically, he steals the uniform because his daughter is getting married that evening, and he can't bear to be at the at the wedding without 
you know, without Appearing. without his uniform, because of course everyone is dressed up, and you see you see that you know the I mean that hierarchies within hierarchies again. You see the wedding procession coming through, and all the people who are presumably all people who live in those in the you know so the wedding procession is kind of in in this location. We see quite a lot. This kind of courtyard with these tall um, kind of tenement you know, blocks of flats uh, around them, and you see everyone obviously you know the bride and groom dressed up, but also everyone else in there in their fancy clothes so everyone's going to be in their fanciest clothes and this comes through while still there are children in rags kind of around so again i think this is a working class pride like everyone will have one um good bit of clothing good bit of clothing which will be an extremely precious possession which only comes out on occasions like this so there's no possible way that he could he could attend dressed any other way i mean i think it makes perfect sense you know really yeah um because that's the thing I really I would like about this film. Too. Yeah, talking about yeah, kind of subtlety and about sort of how it doesn't like we're able both to kind of empathise with his desire for dignity and see that you know he is he is he is a, a somewhat pompous kind of character and he's not particularly bright and you know all those yeah while while giving him a it gives a sensitive portrayal of him and i don't think it patronizes him but it also doesn't you know romanticize him it doesn't lead us to actually think he's more important than he is no you know but yeah but it's it's not a cruel portrayal of him even though what happens to him is cruel which i think is interesting Uh, could we talk about the epilogue Ah, yes. I don't think we're ruining the film because it's such a... Well, we normally say we don't avoid spoilers anyway. Yeah, but I'm not sure it even is. I mean, it's so seemingly tangential i'm i don't know it's it's almost like a another film that gets added on to the end <laughs> in a way well, this is interesting yeah but, but yeah what what strikes me is really interesting is that it's is that that is is flaunted you know mm. um it this is a so yeah so basically what happens is that he's 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 been humiliated at the wedding and everyone laughs at him and all his and um his his neighbours all think, as we said earlier, that he he, he was never never a doorman in, in the first place, you know. Just, um, and he goes back and he falls asleep in in the in the toilet, at which he's the attendant and the kind um, the night watchman who's who's sort of allowed him, you know, to put his uniform back without being, um, you know, without ratting him out. Uh, and puts a coat over him, and then he falls asleep. Right, and then, but then the title say, basically, in the real world, this will be the end of the story, and he'd have a miserable life from now on. But we're going to give him an implausible happy ending, basically. And so, yeah, there was a very, very rich man who happened to to die in the washroom, and and his will said that the person in whose arms he died would inherit his fortune. So then, man becomes incredibly rich, and we have this. The epilogue sort of showing him being stinking rich, but also being incredibly generous with it, and so you know it doesn't turn him into a into a um, you know if it was a if it was some sort of Marxist film, it would probably uh, show him turning into a brutal you know exploiter <laughs> simply through this, but it doesn't. It it just shows him being a a sort of you know one's vision of a of a sort of beneficial you know millionaire who hands out huge huge tips you know to everyone and you know lets other he lets the other homeless guy you know have a ride in his car exactly yeah this unhappy ending should be the ending we're going to give you a ridiculous ending 
Yeah, quite. <laughs> uh, and it does, it does, it does feel the need, of course, to give you a bit of narrative context with the the, the newspaper headline, as you've said about the uh, you know everyone's reading. Oh, this is what happened, mm. and so. Uh, but beyond that, it does hinge, yes, uh, on this fluke, uh, mm. seemingly, um, which which I suppose in a Hollywood context might even be considered to be kind of bad bad writing almost mm. um you'd want a bit more perhaps mm. uh, a bit more lead up um yeah. to that and there's to be some kind of moral that wraps it all in the end whether that's yeah. a kind of a marriage it seems to be very hard to imagine a, a hollywood film now except for maybe i don't know you know if charlie kaufman had gone down a slightly different route i could imagine a charlie kaufman film doing something <laughs> something similar and maybe that but otherwise you know a, a kind of a more mainstream melodrama slash yeah i mean even uh i don't know like i can't imagine uh what i can't imagine a noah baumbach film ending like this you know like what if marriage story had had, had ended with and of course they get divorced that's what happens but here's the ending where they get back together you know i mean okay i say i can't imagine it i obviously can imagine it because i'm just imagine you know but it i think it will be very controversial now <laughs> is there something about the the kind of production context of them being given loads of money and well not loads but you know a decent amount of money as a studio film and and creative freedom that almost leads the film to this kind of it's yes it's a narrative excess but it's also a stylistic excess Mm. um uh, because of the just the amount of uh food that ends up being shown in the frame i mean the 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 scene that we're shown is him kind of gorging away on this massive cake and Mm. meats and um I think there are uh, caviar. There's caviar, isn't oh, there? Yeah, it's a huge, huge amount of caviar. Ridiculous, like yeah. scale is being played with a bit there, um, and an acquaintances coming in and him welcoming them and mm. handing out money, and the cast almost seems to get a bit bigger as well yes. when he's marching down to the carriage to take that's him a, away. But that's I mean that's the thing that Hollywood. Did. I mean this is a bit later, but I'm thinking of like you know a film like Easy Living that has you know and that's okay, so that's in the mid-30s is it mm. it's still Scribble, on edges of the depression so you know still when when there's a when there's an enormous food fight you know at the well, wait in a food fight in a in a kind of food hall for for the poor you know where the where the food is behind little hatches and it's obviously incredibly cheap but still lots of people can't even afford that and there's a food fight there and you think well okay you know what's going on here with the dynamics of the people the people watching this film um Yeah, so that's interesting, you know, so there's a wider interesting context of kind of conspicuous consumption, specifically of food, in a situation in which lots of the, the people watching might only would have had no access to you know, that kind of food. I mean, it's almost more, it's much more brutal in the easy living in a way, because it's a food fight, so they're not even eating it, you know. Um, yeah, is the is the film more of a, a kind of, pr- um, I mean, thinking about the reception, I don't know. A kind of escapism then than mm. necessarily sort of flaunting and a waste and and is it more yeah, a sort I mean, of it's projection? It's meant to be an enjoyable of, ending, isn't it? Yeah, I think get that he gets to gets to eat his cake. Yeah, literally. <laughs> but there is something I don't know. Yeah, I think I have to think this through more. But there's something really interesting about the what's it? Yeah, just the mode that the, that the film is in. I mean, a slightly well, a very tenuous connection, but something that reminds me of just because I've been reading about this and thinking about about this recently so you know the controversy in um so at the end of the winter's tale at the end of 
you know the Shakespeare play when um, when Hermione who's who's been dead for a long part of the film because she died of grief uh, earlier on and then there's a statue of her and then the statue comes back to life yeah. you know, at the end and yeah you know, kind of, what kind of ending is that and that's why people think of the Winter's Tale as a problem play or some people do um, which gets explicitly you know, you know, cinematically dealt with by uh, by Eric Roma in his Comte d'Hiver so you know yeah the Tale of Winter. There are all sorts of films which have what we might think of as unsatisfyingly implausible happy endings that just seem cheap, you know, or something. But there's also clearly at least, well, we so far have two films which make a point of the fact that that their happy ending is unrealistic and attempt to do something with it, you know. It's the reverse of It Was All a Dream. <laughs> yeah. Because it says, it is now a dream, and yes. then leaves you there in that yes. wonderful kind of fantasy ending. Um, which 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 isn't actually a, a fantasy according to the to the intertitles. At least it's actually happened, and we're given reasons for why it's happened. But it feels like a projection of mm. the characters. But it says something like it wouldn't happen in real life, or or exactly something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we use the word projection, of course, in a mm. cinematic context as well of an audience mm. watching a fantasy projected on a screen. <laughs> yeah, at that moment of saying we're going to give you an un unsat- uh, an un an implausible ending. Um, an unreal ending it almost invites a kind of resistance you know so it so it then relies so much on the what happens when you're when you're watching that ending rather than just simply being told the film seems to be operating in some sort of mode of realism which it then breaks but like what's it actually like to sit through the film i think if we were to go with the american title you know the last laugh Mm -hmm. it sounds it sounds overly bitter for the for this ending and for the film that we have sat through and Although there is a bit of a bit of tension between uh, uh, Yanning's character and the the hotel staff who recognise that he's had this fall of fortune, mm. in some cases, it's more of a laugh of jollity, isn't it, than mm. a than a bitter laugh of, you know, I'm I, I'm one upping you. But where does this fit, Dominic, with our theme of the moving camera? Oh, I'm wondering yeah. if we're going to get back around to talking about maybe Carl Freund, the, the cinematographer. and I wanted to, yeah, I think that would be, maybe we can find a, a, a sequence to to watch. And yeah, I wanted to say, yeah, so Carl Freund and his, you know, entfesselte camera, like un, un, unbounded, liberated camera, um, which was not a complete innovation in this film. There are, there, as there always are, I think there are some predecessors, but certainly this film became famous for it. And there are some extraordinary things that are done with cameras, I mean, big, heavy cameras in 924 going down, you know, zip wires and being strapped to Carl Freund's chest while he's in a bicycle in a lift. <laughs> I, think, I think the lightest one was like eight kilos, which isn't bad, but it's still it's still heavy. That's yeah. like a big sack of flour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's crucial. I want maybe maybe this can yeah, to introduce um, our discussion of whichever sequence we we decide to watch. Um, and to tie it in, hopefully, to some of the things we've been saying about style, I wanted to mention another Carl, which is Carl Meyer, mm, the writer. Uh, who wrote the, the screenplay and is, I suppose, probably, I mean, I suppose he's not hes not famous except in, you know, those who have an interest in German cinema in the 1920s, but um, uh, as one of the screenwriters for you know, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So... You know, if people know anything about German cinema in the twenties, they they tend to, I, I would expect, know something about expressionism and um, the sort of subjectivity of a film like 
you know, like Caligari, which is still sort of controversial, are these kind of crazy sets with sort of buildings with impossible angles representing a kind of mad vision. Is that is that exciting and amazing, or is it is it kind of a little stupid and, and excessive? I think people still feel quite strongly on, on, on one side or the other. But So he wrote that film, but he also wrote this film, um, which was talked about as being in the... You know, Kammerspiel or Kammerspiel film, right? So the the, the, the sort of chamber play. Chamber so there was a kind of tradition that that you know precedes the, these films of a, a certain kind of psychological drama. You know, so yeah, these stage plays with I assume sort of not very many characters tending to, to take place in sort of one room. I guess that's the that's the idea of the chamber drama. So kind of the middle class, um, yeah, psychological, you know, sort of melodramas. Um, and yeah, so in in um, in Lottie Eisner's book, I think this is quite interesting. So, okay, well, there's a further complication because some people have reacted to the Last Laugh as being um, kind of neither a neither a Kammerspiel film or an expressionist film, but some new kind of realism. That obviously expressionism is more obviously not realist in any way, but still, nonetheless, there's. The Cambridgeville film wasn't a kind of, kind of social, social realism. It wasn't dealing with that. It was much more kind of psychological, I think, to do with, yeah, particular kind of bourgeois characters. And things. Um, but nonetheless, it's still sort of those two tendencies are, off, I think, sort of talked about, right, as being two two very important tendencies of, of uh, you know, Weimar cinema, the, yeah, the sort of chamber play type film and the sort of expressionist um, horror, sci-fi, what you know, and there's, you can see obviously there there are lots of of tensions between those two, um, but uh, yes, and so uh, uh, Lottie Eisner writes, so she yeah, um, she says Dominic is now holding Lottie Eisner's book. I'm holding Lottie uh, Eisner's listeners. book, which I'll show to the microphone. Um, yeah, this I think originally came out in French in the '60s and then was published in an English translation in the early '70s, um, and she writes. Uh, the antinomy between the Kammerspiel film with its psychological interest and the expressionist vision, which excludes all psychology, gives a certain hybrid quality to Karl Meyer's scripts. He was at one and the same time an expressionist writer and a poet of the Kammerspiel. So she quite interestingly sees this film as some sort of impossible hybrid, right? She's, I mean, she says an antinomy, which is what, like a, like a you know, an... Uh, irresolvable contradiction that we've like got expressionist films which have no psychology or sort of in-depth psychology according to her and it's simply done externally and then you have these films that are all about internal psychologies and, and somehow this film has them together which which you know suggests it's some kind of synthesis of, of these two big um tendencies although it strikes me that one reaction would also be to say that if you find these two things together in one film where they clearly can't be contradictory and incompatible because we've got them both in this film. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. Both both categories, yeah, you'd have to you'd have to I suppose define them quite tightly, wouldn't you, to say they're antim antimonies antimonies. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, hopefully hopefully that was that was wasn't too long winded, but the 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 sort of point of that was just to say in terms of, as you say, if we're moving into maybe looking at the moving camera and thinking of the style of the film, it seems to have been thought of as somehow exhibiting 
or exemplifying stylistic um, ways of filmmaking, you know, to do with sort of what style does, right? You know, not just simply how a film looks, but what the style is doing in terms of the narrative and the psychology, which are potentially or almost contradictory. Whereas this film doesn't strike me at all as a film which it's a even with what we we said about the ending and maybe that's the um it's it's a very cohesive and coherent film I mean, yes. isn't it you know like mike Spe- you know you know there are films which you can go right this this film has two radically different stylistic tendencies and it sort of lurches from one to the other in a, either an exciting and interesting or a an unconvincing way whatever that's not that wouldn't be what no my reaction to this film i i feel like um i know i know what is meant by the the kind of chamber drama elements but i also don't feel the film is just one about interiority it's largely about community isn't it and mm. um um a forecourt a big open forecourt with people ex- exchanging views and saluting one another and greeting yeah. one another which w- wouldn't be as befitting for a chamber drama where the space is linked to right. matter of psychology and internal uh, yes matters and and so on. Um, that's no, that's 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 a good point. Yeah, so literally, it's not a chamber drama in in the sense of, or or, no. it, or it enters that at some point when you're in his his apartment um, with his. I mean, you get a specific sense of space of his apartment with his daughter. There are elements of it, um, but I don't. I don't. But I don't feel it perfectly fits the category of an expressionist film either, because it's not as aggressive in its style. No. Certainly not in the set design as Caligari, for example. No, um, and yet there is something kind of like when you, if you first see those tenement blocks of flats, which, like you say, it's not anywhere near as extreme, and you could just describe it as a kind of realism. But there's something about how they're filmed. You know, it reminds me of Fritz Lang or something as well. There's there's something about the use of architecture which expresses something. Yeah, <laughs> it has something in common with a kind of expressionism. It's funny how it does that, but it's also about verisimilitude because it's mm. creating a bigger space than is actually there. Yeah, gives it a very urban feel. It's all filmed in the studio, isn't it? The mm. entire yeah, in one of yeah. I mean, it, maybe it shows some of the, you know, inadequacies of these categories. I mean, in a helpful way, it's like we still need to, to use the categories, but it's a helpful you know, reminder not to not to use the categories instead of thinking about what they mean, you know, to use them as shorthand rather than using them as shortcuts. <laughs> that's right. So that, I think that sets us up quite nicely, though, to talk, talk about what the camera yeah. adds <laughs> yes. to this, this, yeah, Synthesis of styles. <laughs> Hello, Stephen here. Do join us in episode 16, where we'll be examining a sequence from Delet's Man using the moving camera in more detail. Thanks for listening to Discursion, a film podcast with Dominic Lash and Stephen Roberts. <laughs>